Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Famika Edmond is a senior public health educator for the HIV STI Prevention Division of Detroit's Health Department. As a child, her mother brought Famika and her siblings to Michigan from New York. When her family found themselves homeless, Famika signed out of high school and went to work to help take care of the family. Six months later, after her family was able to get housing, she went back to school and received her GED. One of her goals was to attend a four-year college. She ended up getting accepted to four different colleges. Famika attended Eastern Michigan University, where she completed her Bachelor's of Science degree in Health Administration. She's also earned her Master's in Health Administration and is working on a second Master's in Public Health. In 2019, she was accepted into the Black AIDS Institute Ambassador Program. The program's purpose is to build engagement and movement around HIV and sexual health for Black women in the Metro Detroit area. Famika realized the need for women to have a safe space to be able to express themselves and be supported by other women. She founded and created For the Love of Her. Her, H-E-R, stands for Healing, Empowerment, and Resilience. It's a five-week workshop in which participants are given the opportunity to examine their journey and its rising themes in order to identify experiences that have potentially blocked or slowed personal and or professional growth. Famika was part of a Detroit-based team scheduled to present an NGO parallel event as part of a 25th anniversary of the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women. Famika, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. And yourself? I'm doing wonderful. You know, um, I'll tell you, I have talked to London a number of times. In fact, London and I go way far back. And I think, um, and a lot of other people who we both know, like uh, Pamela Alexander, um, Danny Woods. And Mm -hmm. um, London was telling me about, you know, this plan that you had to go to um, the UN. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I don't know her. And I said, I need to know her. So I started to, to look about you. And mm-hmm. I also saw that we also had shared a connection with the Ruth Ellis Center. But I see mm-hmm. that you're originally from New York. How did you end up here in Michigan? 
That was all my mom. <laughs> we originally came up here in 1980. Um, my mother um, married, and so um, my stepfather was from Michigan. So we ended up relocating here, um, I want to say, like, in the spring of 1980. Even though I've gone back and forth home, I've, Michigan ended up being my home here. Uh-huh. Wow. So do you, did you grad finish high school here? I know you went to college at Eastern Michigan. So that's a long story. We <laughs> had some setbacks, um, I want to say, in 88. And so um, we ended up actually being homeless for a little while. So I actually had to sign out of school, and I um, went on ahead and worked to make sure I could take care of my mom, take care of the family. Um, I want to say six months later, once we were able to get housing and stuff like that, I went back and actually received my GED. And Mm. one of my goals was I wanted to be in a four-year college, even though – Back in 88, it was like the likelihood of me being able to get admitted into a four-year school, they were like it's slim to none. And I ended up actually getting accepted to four different colleges and was able to pick All the right. to go to. So I was very proud of myself about that. And I passed my test the first time around. So um, my first uh-huh. year, I actually went to Florida Memorial College. It was a college at the time before um, they became a university. Um, went about a year. But I got homesick and decided to come on back up to um, Michigan to complete my studies. So then I ended up re- um, coming back and um, transferring to Eastern Michigan University. Hmm. I mean, that, that's great. I mean, you know, how, I mean, you hear stories about people who have, you know, gone through being homeless, come out of foster care, all that stuff, but um, – and it's always amazing to me, people want to, society wants to, like, write you off. So, like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, uh, did you feel that? I mean, did, did people understand that you left school to take care of your family? Yeah. When, when you, did they get that? I got that. I got, and a lot of people did not understand. Um, mm-hmm. um, I hate to say it, a lot of um, discord came from my actual family and um, like our extended family and you know I think that was another reason will push me to make sure I accomplish going finishing up high school and going to college because I wanted to prove to everybody just because we just had you know we had this particular hardship that wasn't going to hold me back from the things I wanted to work towards for myself mm-hmm. you know because really I mean when you talk about it you know bad things happen to good people and Mm -hmm. it can either keep you down and break you or you find strength from it and you rise above it i mean it's interesting how and it is true often it is your family members who sort of go like "Mm, there you go i mean Mm -hmm. i had a son and i remember my grandmother was the one who said you know when people are going to write me off so i'm like look she's not the first you know teenager who got pregnant you know I mean, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? She can be whatever she wants. And mm-hmm. when, as you were taking care of your mother, how, how was she pushing you to, to, to go back to school? What did she feel? And, and how did you 
help her recognize that, yes, family, you're doing this for the family, but that she didn't feel that guilt like she was taking away from your future. Well, I mean, we, we both sat down around the time that I ended up getting signed out of school. And one thing I did tell her, I made a promise to her that the day that we had to go and sign me out, that I told her, I'm going back to school. In fact, I found a GED program, and the day that my mom signed me out of regular high school, we had went and looked into other um, alternative programs I can go into. Uh So once we were settled, me and my mom went down together, and she signed me into an alternative alternative adult program so then I can Uh get back in school. And I don't even think I was out of school a good um, 60 days before I was back Uh in the program. So I think that was the key. I didn't want to let time lapse because I feel like sometimes you let time lapse and then you get complacent. And I didn't want to do that. I felt like the sooner I could get back into school, the sooner I could still achieve finishing school at the time frame I wanted to finish school. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I bet your mother must be so proud of you, particularly not only when you went back to school, but then when you got, you know, you went off to college, like you told her you were going to do. Now, well, college, it did take me a minute because I ended up Mm -hmm. um, 26 um, having my um, twins. So I was going to school, but I, you know, would take a few classes here and there. Mm -hmm. So I actually did not finish my first degree until 2010. And then right after that, I went right back and finished my master's. Mm-hmm. But you know what? It doesn't matter how long it took you. The thing is, it's like, you know, you did it. I mean, that's what I, 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 I don't even tell you how long it took me. But, you know, it was like, you know, it was that determination, whether it was mm-hmm. like one class this time, another class that time. What lesson from what you and your mother went through and your family, and then now you've got your twins, what lesson do you try to pass on to them about family and persistence? Being loyal, um, one thing I try to teach with, because um, I have four children, with all four of them is family loyalty and keep and having each other's back. Because um, mm. I think being supportive is so key to being successful. So um, my thing with my kids, if they may fall down, but they know they, they have my back and I'm going to be there and be supportive. And one thing I wanted to be that type of mother, I don't want to tell you to do do as I say and not do as I do. So, mm-hmm. you know, even though I wanted them to finish college, I felt like, too, how can I tell my kids this is what they should be doing if I haven't even done it for myself? So that was something I always try to instill in them. If mommy is getting out here and doing this and that, and I've had to come over a lot of barriers to get to this point in my life, you guys can do it. And you just got to persevere. And even though things may get tough, you know, you just got to keep thinking. There's always a light at the end of each tunnel of the goals mm. that you set. Mm. Mm. Yes, that, is, that is powerful. And that's an important, you know, we also share a background um, with the Ruth Ellis Center. I mean, I was on the board of the Ruth Ellis Center before they moved. Yeah, no. When they first moved into the facility that they're in now, and it was nothing mm-hmm. like that. And um, 
you see that, and as you see what's happening and, and there's youth and the challenges that young people are, are facing, how was your background able to help the kids who are at Ruth Ellis Center? Well, when I came to the Ruth Ellis Center, I came in like in 2014. I had left um, University of Michigan Population Health Department. I was a case manager there. So I um, came to do case management for them at that point in time. One thing I, I know at first it, the kids had to get to know me and know who I was. Um, the key I felt was meeting the kids where they were at. And letting them realize, uh-huh. yeah, maybe I might have had a better background than you guys did, but you don't know what I have had to go through with the background I had either. So, you know, meeting them where they were at, um, I did build a rapport with them. Um, a lot of the kids I still keep in contact with. So uh-huh. I do feel like an impact and impression on a lot of the kids. Um, I didn't look down at them. Um, some of the kids i listening to their stories, um, I could relate with some of the things that they had to um, encounter about coming out to their family, Um, because I actually didn't come out to my family until I started working there. I always Uh was in the closet, and even when I did at that point while I was still working there, my family had stopped talking to me because of it, and then um, the kids ended up being like a support in on the um, staff ended up being like a support during that time. But one thing I had to say to myself, you know, the thing that they don't have, they don't, you know, they still need like housing and other things that needed to be addressed. At least when I go home at the end of the day, I still had somewhere to go. I still was able to support myself, even though my family wasn't there. So um, it, it, it ended up becoming like home for me with Lucellus around that time. Mm-hmm. You know, I often um, tell people, and back when I was involved with Lucellus and um, being on the board prior to um, joining the board and where they were and getting involved, in fact, mm-hmm. I wrote about it for the Between the Lines, I had not gone into Ruth Ellis in part mm-hmm. Because as a teenager, I had experienced some homelessness. I had experienced people not caring about me, you know, family putting me down, Mm -hmm. you know. And it it bothered me so to know that this was still going on. And it took a moment before I could go in there and be a part of, of that and not feel in a way triggered, particularly right. when I heard some of the stories. When you heard some of the stories of the kids who had, you know, gone through homelessness and maybe had dropped out of school but didn't have someone who helped them get into, get back into school and go on, did you ever have that moment of, of feeling, getting in your feelings? You know, not really. My thing, Uh I think the mother instinct in me kicked in and Uh the nurturer kicked in me and wanted to make sure that they can be the best that they could be, whatever it Uh is, Uh and try to give them the tools that they needed so that they could be successful. So if a kid came to me and they was like, Miss Famika, I want to go to school, 
I would run them around. I took one kid one time all the way to Oakland University and got her uh-huh. signed up. So, I mean, whatever it was and whatever barrier that they had that was hindering them from being able to um, put that particular goal in place, I try to help them get past that so they could go ahead and if it was going to school, getting them into school. If it was trying to look for them for housing, I would run around trying to look for housing for these kids, you know. So whatever it was, I try to do the best I could. So whatever barriers, because I didn't have that. I had my mm-hmm. mom, but she was at the time also trying to get back on her feet, you know what I mean? So it wasn't mm-hmm. like I had family support to kick in for my mom when we were homeless and everything. So I think that that more... It really, that really wasn't a trigger for me. It was more that nurturer kicked in, and I knew that as a case manager first, I needed to make sure that I was doing everything I wanted to. But that mom part and being a nurturer and to make sure that they felt supported, that also had kicked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I think that for me, I, I know what you mean. It was like I had that moment, but once I got in there and saw it, it was almost, I felt angry that mm-hmm. this stuff was still going on to kids, and that's why I think that since then, ever since the New Fellows is one of my, my favorite organizations, which I always try to fundraise and do things to help them, because it's like we have to get beyond that and have safe spaces for our kids. You know, it just yeah, doesn't, you know, we just, we just can't keep it going on like that. It just, ha- like I say, they keep saying, well, it gets better. Well, it only gets better if we work at making it better. Exactly. You know, I know people who have worked for you, fellas, and I know that it's very hard to leave. But when you left, you entered into the HIV STD field as a disease intervention specialist at the Wayne County Health Department. How difficult was it, and what drew you to that field of work? Um, some of it because at the time, I'm not going to lie, I needed a job. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And then, too, I had, um, I do have, I've had two family members that passed from AIDS, and then mm. I do have a family member at this present time that is actually living with HIV. So, um, it, it did draw me into it because of, some of the stigmatization that still surrounds HIV and just looking at how people are still treated as much as we're trying to normalize HIV. Um, still a lot of people feel are stuck in their ways to what they think HIV really looks like. Um, it, I enjoy the work, but it's difficult because um, you still have a lot of people who are still ignorant about HIV, and uh-huh. it doesn't matter how much we try to educate people about it. Um, you're just going to still have people who still believe we're still in the late 80s, and this is still a death sentence if you um, it, uh, end up being exposed to it, um, which it is not. But a lot of people don't realize the medications now are much better than they were in the late 80s. And people are living a lot longer now. Um, people are also, if they're taking their medications the way that they should, they are becoming virally suppressed where they're not exposing anybody to it or passing it along. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and, and we know, I mean, we know, I mean, so much has happened, but it's still 
there. And, yeah. you know, um, it's still there. Uh, different populations, like you said, there's people who don't want to to talk about it. I know, interestingly, I, have been, I had interviewed a woman who lived in Florida, and there's a senior village in mm-hmm. Florida where they said they have the highest incidence of STDs and HIV because these seniors got there, you know, they were ignorant of it in this day and age. Well, we, and that's the thing, Um, I'm glad you brought that up because um, that, by the seniors not being what they consider an at-risk demographic, and that's not where funding is actually being put towards. It's being put towards more to, with men who are having sex with men and the transgender um, transgender women. So because of that, a lot of education is not being focused on black women. It's not being focused on the senior population. Um, what is nice with my job, we have been going out and actually have doing present, educational presentations with the senior um, demographic, and, and educating them on their, their stats here in Detroit because their mm-hmm. numbers are just as high as someone that's in their 20s or 30s. And a lot of it is because they're not being educated. Their doctors are not having those conversations with them. Um, many times they feel like um, if they're widowed, they're not back out there. And you have people who are living longer, so you, they should be also be offered to be tested, and a lot of times they're not. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's true because, you know, back under, before, um, who was that, our last governor, they mm-hmm. had a committee which dealt with Michigan women and AIDS, and one of the things that we often would hear there where you would hear women who would say, like if they went to their doctor and they said, you know, would you test me for AIDS or this, especially if they said if you test me for AIDS, and they were like regular, you know, what the doctor perceived as regular housewives, they'd go like, mm-hmm. oh, you don't need that, you know, and like they have to push for that. And then like sometimes we would go into church, and I know, I'm pretty sure you know the Searles, Felix and, and mm-hmm. Paula Searles, and they would talk about, and we, I know I had gone to a thing with them, and like the minister, he was talking about, you know, praying for people who were were affected by HIV, but the way that he talked about it, it was those quote-unquote sinners out there in the street, you know, Mm -hmm. doing all these these bad things to where his message was, and I know that that Paula was saying, you know, that's partly just that you gospel and AIDS, because they said, you know, some of the people who probably needed to get this testing and, and talk about it were sitting right in the pews, but he shamed them by saying, right. by framing it as, as a disease of, you know, like prostitutes, drug drug addicts, gay men, and trans women. Is that, that goes happening? It is, and that's why we, a lot of people who are HIV advocates um, and activists are really trying, and, and myself who are educators, we are really trying to get out here in the community and trying to change the stigmatization around HIV, and also have people change their narrative to how they talk about it, change their message, because it's not it's not a it's not something to be ashamed of. It, it it's, it's just like STDs. It's not something to be ashamed of. But if it happens, people need to know what they need to do, 
They need to know where they can go get tested. They need to know what preventative methods are out there to keep them from being exposed to it. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. if you shame people, they're not going to go. They're not going to go get tested. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. it's important that we have to be educated, be aware of what's going on out here in today's world with HIV and STDs, um, and also really encourage people to start changing their narrative of how they send out their messaging. And especially if you're somebody who is a pastor, you, you're yeah. leading a congregation. And so if you discourage your um, congregation from going and getting tested or shame them, they're not going to go get tested. And then what happens, these numbers keep climbing because people are not going and making sure that they're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we're going to take our first break here. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to continue talking with Famika Edmund. And we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And I've been talking with Famika Edmund. And, you know, you do a lot of work with HIV and STD. And, you know, like you said, people are living longer. And, and what I like about Felix and Paula is how not only do they tell their story, but, you know, like they are thriving with HIV. I mean, they've lived a long time. They have children. They have grandchildren. I have a friend mm-hmm. who's in Nashville to before they found the right thing. At one point, he had got to the point where they thought he was close to death. He has gone mm-hmm. on and become an award-winning author, a radio personality, and they're doing it. And, you know, so, like you said, people are living longer. And, you know, you, there are drugs out here. You see commercials out there, and you can be undetectable. But who is most at, still most at risk? And is it because and doesn't have access to these drugs and this treatment that can help them live longer? Right now, our youth, our male youth, are the most at risk. Um, the um, the average age is 15 to 26, um, and many times it's because they're not aware of where to go get tested. Um, I know here in Detroit, I know we do um, have our rates around the Highland Park area um, was mostly on the east side. The numbers were kind of high when I first had started working for the Detroit Health Department, and I feel a lot of reasons for that. 
was because people were not aware of where they can go get tested anymore, especially since the Detroit Health Department at that point in time um, had dismantled because of the bankruptcy here in Detroit. And a lot Uh of people were not aware anymore where they can actually go get tested. Um, Now that the health department is back in existence, um, we do have an HIV prevention program. So we do go out and we do try to educate the community wherever we are able to get in and educate individuals. Um, We also have a condom distribution program. So people are able to go and get free condoms because that's another issue. Studies have, research has shown that in more urban areas, condoms are locked up. Um, If they're, and they have, usually when you go into like a CVS or Walgreens, you have to go to an attendant and have them unlock them. A lot of times they're overpriced. So if they're they're overpriced and they're not accessible, people are not going to use them. And if you go into more suburban areas, they're out and open and they're not locked up. And usually they're reasonably priced. Um, or you're running the risk that the uh, condoms may be outdated. And so if they're outdated, the composition of the condoms change up and they may not be effective. So one thing about having the condom program, people can go on the Detroit Health Department website and obtain free condoms. Uh-huh. So... So education and making sure that we're getting the Uh word out there where people can actually go get tested. So you do have Uh a couple of centers here in Detroit where people can go get tested. Plus, you can go on the CDC's website, put your zip code in, and they can tell you where you can go get tested at. Um, If you do have a primary care physician, I always stress when I go out and speak on prevention that have those conversations with your primary care provider. If they're doing your annual physical, that is something that they can loop in with your regular lab. They can just add a couple of more tubes and you ask for HIV STD profile. And if your Mm -hmm. primary care physician is not having that conversation, you need to have that conversation with them. Mm. Now, at last year's State of the Union address, the current occupant of the White House pledged to end the spread of HIV in the United States by... 2030. That's a big claim. Mm -hmm. Okay, but we know that funding, you know, health care has been under attack for those most vulnerable and resources for those most vulnerable aren't there. How has your job changed? Has it become harder under the current administration? It's harder because of the focus that they want us to put it on. It And the thing is, when you go out here and talk to the public, it should not just be one demographic that we're um, targeting our message to because it's not just affecting just black young men. It's affecting black women. It's, it's affecting everybody. It's affecting babies. It's affecting our seniors. So I feel like because we get restricted to who we should be educating, that puts a whole plethora of other people at risk because we're not putting that message out there to them. Mm. Mm. I mean, that, that, that's just, just an, 
Well, I mean, like I said, it's, you know, it's easy to say it, but then you want to see it. You want to see that it's, it's happening. And I know that if you're poor <laughs> in America, you know, resources just aren't there for you. Well, now, fortunately, <laughs> um, because, well, fortunately and not, not uh, you're here. And we were anticipating you being on your way to New York mm-hmm. to talk in front of the UN, but because of the COVID-19 virus, which people, we aren't sure how it's it's doing. And again, mm-hmm. we have a, a someone who, uh, uh, the current occupant, when he talks about the resources to put towards it, even like from the person he's going to head it, uh, you have a, a medical doctor on your team, but you put someone who is a science denier over this. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, but that made it, hey, you're here. How right. did you get... Um, I've talked to London Bell many times. She, I would say that London is a human rights activist. I yes, mean, she, she cares about. I mean, she cares about people and and what's going on. How did she? Do you get involved in this going to the to the UN? How did she she pull you in? What did, what was what did she tell you about it? And why did you feel it was important? that this information be presented on this mm-hmm. platform? Well, um, me and London had got to speaking, I want to say, during the summer. And uh-huh. at that time, I was a Black AIDS ambassador for um, Black AIDS Institute. So one of my platforms for the year was trying to really push the envelope about getting the message out there to our black females whether they're sisters, trans sisters, and really like talking about um, HIV, STD, biomedical prevention, and um, our reproductive um, rights. And so once I had let her know that, she got really interested in what I was doing. And then I want to say towards the end of the year, she had um, emailed me and asked me would I be interested in um, being a part of the parallel um, panel. And I felt like it would be, first of all, an honor to even go to the U.N. and be Uh able to speak at that level. And two, I just felt like it was so imperative to get my message out because this is not just a problem that's affecting black women here in Michigan. It's not just a problem that's affecting black women in the United States. It's a global problem, and it needs to be addressed. And even though there has been a lot of um, strides that has happened in healthcare, there's still uh, a huge uh, work that needs to be done when it comes to women, especially black women, when it comes to our health care. And London had approached me, I want to say, I had received an email from her, like, I want to say the latter part of October going into November about what um, would I be interested in joining her at the UN in March um, and to I can come and speak about the stuff that I have been working on, especially for my platform that I had with Black AIDS Institute when I was an ambassador. And so I, we met. Um, it was me, Deidre, um, Danny, and Pamela. We all met, and we discussed, you know, what 
her requirements were, what her expectations were. And I just felt like it would be awesome, and it would give me another level of where I can be able to speak about the things that were going on with black women and our health care and, you know, some of the issues that we're facing when it comes to health care. Um, because even though I, at this point, have been speaking more on a local level and mm-hmm. some, like, national level, I felt like the problem is just not a national or a local problem. It's a global problem when it comes to black women health care. So there were things that definitely needed to be addressed, and I was really looking forward for me to be able to go to the U.N. and speak about some of the issues that we face. Um, one, one main issue is that a lot of times we're not being invited to the table when it comes uh-huh. to decision-making. And I think it's key that we have to start making sure our voices are being heard because a lot of times when it even comes down to research, they're not taking us in consideration when they determine what side effects are going to happen to certain things. They just push things on us and expect us to just take meds and do whatever. Um, You know, so that's why I'm just feeling, you know, it's important that our black women have to be educated to why Mm -hmm. we have to have a voice. But isn't there also, when you figure, like, they do all this research and they do a lot of these things, but often, okay, now they try things out on us. and But mm-hmm. often they're gearing towards, we get to be the guinea pig, but often yep. the people who they're looking at are primarily the white population, white women. And there are mm-hmm. other things that, you know, that affect us, like often, black people live in neighborhoods to where there are environmental issues that might be affecting their health. So that the same thing that, you know, Becky in the suburbs might be dealing with is not saying stressors, the environmental issues that we're doing. How do you, you know, in, in your message, how I, is that part of what you're trying to, to say to a broader population? Like, hey, you know, we have these issues, but what are you looking at at us? Well, what that was one thing I was definitely going to dab into is about the social determinants of health that people face, that, uh-huh. you know, people look at a lot of times if a black person presents and they may be homeless or they're not following up on their appointments because um, the doctor may feel like they just don't want to come. It might be... If they're homeless, they don't have transportation, and they don't know where the resources are, they're not going to go in. So we have to look at that. And just like Becky may be coming to the doctor's appointment from Bloomfield Hills, and she has a car to get there, and she knows where her doctor's office is, and she also has insurance, she doesn't have those uh-huh. same barriers the black person has. And we have, as health care providers, we have to look at that. And we have to meet people where they're at when they come to us. And part of being a, a health care provider, if you, if you start pulling, I feel it's imperative. We have to start pulling back the layers to see what is the root of the problem and not just look at somebody because of their skin or their gender to why we feel that this is the reason why they're not doing what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, um, I'm, one, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you, you go ahead. No, I was just saying, and another thing I had wanted to really talk about is um, some of the racism that we face also 
in our healthcare field um, because of these because of the racism people um, face. Also, it it can um, cause more disparities than we need. As also, um, I didn't realize until I really started doing a lot of research here that we have a really high maternal mortality rate in the United mm-hmm. States, a developed country, and it's our black women. And there's not much conversation being said about that. And it's something that needs to be looked at. And you've had big-name stars like Beyonce, Serena Williams, who have faced issues when they were delivering. And so even though they are in a better economic um, you know, place in their life than a lot of other black women, but because they were a black woman, they did not get the care or got listened to. Because they just mm-hmm. felt like, even though they might have been in pain or whatever, it was just dismissed because we're, we're supposed to be able to tolerate certain things that our white counterparts may not be able to. A white woman could present and say that, you know, I've been getting headaches for weeks. They'll go and run every test on them, whereas a black woman, they'll just dismiss it and send that black woman home. So these are things we have to look at that's impacting our health care when it comes to the, how we are treated as black women. And the only re- way that's going to change, we have to be that voice. We have to speak up. Do you find that, like you said, that also that part of it is that helping us women, black women, to, to learn to speak up? I was in Atlanta, and there was a, um, a program, and one day, the Saturday, Sunday morning part was about health care, and they were talking to people, and it was a predominantly LGBT, well, lesbians, really. It was all mm-hmm. lesbians but, and allies, and there was some trans women there. But I know, but, but there was some who talked about how, you know, like you said, if they went in and they said something, even like they would immediately get a pill, and, you know, without looking deeply into what was going on with them, or the fact that they felt that, you know, they were getting shortchanged in the mm-hmm. kind of help. And uh, the presenter said to one woman, she said, you know, if you don't like the doctor and you don't think that they're hearing you, you know, you go to your insurer or whatever and complain and ask to see somebody else. And she was like, you know, and it was like, this woman looked like, I should ask to see a different doctor. And it's like, yeah. You know, and they were, like, talking about empowering them to, to take their health care in their own hands and something mm-hmm. to question things and push it. But it was amazing that here we are in, like, 2019, and we're telling people, you know, you just don't have to take whatever, and that that added to them continuing to be sick because mm-hmm. they weren't getting the care they needed. Right. I think a lot of times um, because we buy in with the fact that our health care providers are knowledgeable, they should know what they're supposed to be um, doing and telling us that many times people um, don't feel they have the right to speak up and advocate for themselves. Then I know um, being in the health field for as long as I have been in the health field, a lot of times people are not aware who they need to go, the channels that they have to go through when they need to report mistreatment when um, they go into these hospitals. 
you know. So, I'm like, even with my kids, when I was working at Ruth Ellis Center, if I went, a couple of kids had came to me who were transgender, and I know they had went to a healthcare establishment, and a couple of times they were not, their preferred names were not used, they, they were misgendered, it was all of that. So I went with them, and I saw it for myself. I had to correct uh-huh. the provider a couple of times. Um, but they were not aware of what the steps were to report that person. So I think that's key. And we also have to feel empowered to know it's okay to do that. You have the right to speak up for yourself. But sometimes uh-huh. people don't feel that they have the right to do that. So um, I think it's key because a lot of times people don't know what the steps are. First thing you should ask for, if you're not being treated right, ask for um, whoever their um, public relations department is and, and see if you can file a, a formal complaint. Uh-huh. And change uh-huh. doctor if it gets uh-huh. down to it. And I also will report it to my health care insurance and let them know how this provider is. Uh-huh. You know, so, but that's education. And that's why it's key that we have to be out here educating our, um, especially our black women, about how to be able to advocate for their self when they go and seek care. Now, you are a, I mean, just listen to, okay, you got into this field, and like when we were talking earlier, and I said, you left your fellowship, and you said, well, you just need a job, but then you went on and you, and you continued your education. You got more and more. I know that you have one master's degree, you're working on a second master's degree, but you're this fierce advocate. You know, some people go and, you know, they get their degrees and they got a job and they go do their mm-hmm. job. But, you know, how did, what makes you this fierce advocate? I think because I've seen it for myself. Mm-hmm. I've seen it when, um, uh, I've seen how I've been treated. I've seen it with people I love, people that I've worked with, how they were mistreated. And I just, you know, my thing is I love to help people and I want people to have um, the best life that they can have. And if I can make it better for them, that's what, I, you know, that's how I've always operated. If whatever barriers I need to help them remove so they can have a better and sustainable life, um, that I've always wanted to always go that extra mile for people. Mm-hmm. Now, I noticed that that one of your, uh, I, I'd say your, your AKA is Ms. Ambitious. And I know, I mean, to step up and say, you know what, I've got this message, I'm going to go do this. And to say, you know, there's a lot of people who they want to talk around locally, small groups, but to go between before the UN, I mean, this is huge, mm-hmm. but you said like you knew that you needed to, to take this to step it up, you know, and to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, where did Ms. Ambitious come from and and what drives you? Well, that was my line name. When I became a Zeta, <laughs> I'm part uh-huh. of um, Zeta Phi Beta Sorority. Uh, so that was actually my line name, my profile, um, and my dean gave me when I um, crossed. Um, I just think because at that time, they saw I was trying to raise my kids because I went grad. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wanted to pledge, but for one reason or another, when I was in undergrad, I wasn't able to pledge. 
um, whether it was time, money, or it just my grades might have not have been the best for me to be able to pledge at that time. Um, it was just one thing after another. So I actually went um, and pledged well, when I became went into grad school. And um, I think they just saw I was working. I was going back to school at that point in time for my master's, and I was trying to raise my kids at the same time, and then still having to maintain being a line sister and doing the things that was expected of me as, um, a, you know, trying to become a member of Zeta Phi Beta sorority. So um, that was my name I was given. I was, and it, to me it was an honor because I also got my Z in my name. So I was really, you know, honored when I was told what my line name was going to be. Now, you know, that's interesting. I'm going to tell you, honestly, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not in any sorority. And, and I kind of think that I'm, many people think that that's the thing, like you said, like when you're in your undergrad, when you first get to college, you know, you go and do that. And, you know, and like you, when I was going to get my undergrad, I was trying to raise this kid, you know, doing that. And so <laughs> I was like, you know, I just don't have time to do that. But what was it that you, you knew that you, about this particular sorority, but also why you pursued it later on? And and as the masters, and if there's someone who's out there who's who's going like you know, I've missed that bus. It's something I'd like to do, but you know, I'm out of you know, I've already graduated, got my my BA mm-hmm. or whatever. Why would you tell them to pursue that? That it that it's something that you did, and that they should consider. Well, one thing they really impressed me when I first went to college. I, like I said, I was away from home. I was far from home, and they embraced me like they were family. So I think I really like that bond that, that the blue and white have for each other because it's not just the Zetas. You have the Sigmas also, Phi Beta Sigma. So it, it's a big family. So I like the bond that they had with each other, and I liked how they brought me into the fold when I first came down to college. And then when I came back up to Eastern, you know, it was still the same camaraderie that they had when I was down south. And um, even though I might have had, um, you know, certain situations that hindered me from being able to pledge when I was in undergrad, something just in the back of my mind, that was something that I wanted to do and I was going mm-hmm. to do it. So once I made up my mind that that's what I wanted to do, it was going to happen. I just didn't know when it was going to happen but I wanted it to happen. And it was like once I had finally graduated from undergrad, I looked in to see if I could still do it at that point. And when I did find out I could still do it at that point, I was like, I'm I'm going to do it. Um, mm. So it was something, it was a goal of mine that I felt like that hadn't been accomplished, so I'm going to accomplish it. And I had a friend a couple of years after that who had came to me, and wanted to be a Sigma. And I kept telling him, and he was like, I think I'm too old. You know, I think I missed the mark on it. I said, you are never too old. I was almost 40 when I became a Zeta. And I said, if that's something you want to do, you don't ever let nobody put an age criteria on Uh when you need to do something. You don't let any of that hold you back from what you do. Go ahead, look into, I sat there, looked up a chapter, 
got help, helped him get in touch with the people, and he's a Sigma today, you know. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if it's something you want in life, don't let nobody tell you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, wow. that's how I try to operate mostly in my mm-hmm. life. That I try not to, it may take me a while sometimes to get to the point where I want to be at, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to let things take me off my path. I might not have became a Zeta when I was in my 20s, but before I hit my 40s, I was a Zeta. So, you know, my thing was that was a a personal goal for me, just like with college. Even though I did not hit the mark when I first went in, like a lot of my friends were done in their 20s, off living their lives and, you know, finished college and everything, and I was still struggling through, I didn't let that stop me from reaching my dreams and finishing my goals with school. And I finished it too, you know. So people just got to realize just because sometimes things don't always happen the way you want and that path sometimes might get a little rickety and crooked and stuff, just keep (laughs) saying good God first and trust me, you'll look up and you'll see the light at the end of your tunnel. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, that, That looks phenomenal. Uh, that is really that is really amazing. Well, we're going to take our second break, and then I want to talk about what you were going to do at, at the UN and what you're going to do with that presentation, that idea that you put in. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown with my guest, Famika Edmonds. Famika, okay, so you yes. you had this opportunity, you guys worked together, you pulled it all together, and then <laughs> this virus popped up. Um, I know. <laughs> so um, what exactly was your presentation going to look like going to New York and what do you intend to do with this presentation you pulled together because this is information that still needs to to be out there. Right. Well, some of the things I wanted to hit when I went, uh, because first of all, my title for my presentation was The Invisible Community, and it was about talking about the health disparities for black women and girls. So some of the things that I wanted to really put out there is some of the, the different types of health disparities that black women are facing when it comes to health care. Um, I definitely have wanted to talk about the social determinants a lot of us face because of us living in um, poor communities and not having a lot of the resources that we may need or available 
um, individuals who may be living in um, cities that they have, like, food deserts and not able to get to grocery stores and being able to have um, nutritional food available. Um, also, I have wanted to talk about um, different type of racism we deal with with other ethnicities and also racism we deal with within ourselves with each other. Um, I really wanted to talk about implicit biases and how that is also impacting um, women when it comes to our health care. So those were some of the things and how I wanted to shape my presentation when I went out to the UN. So, and how did that piece fit in with the overall, what was the overall presentation and how did that fit in with it? Basically, talking about the strides that we have made in healthcare, but also showing there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And that if we don't start looking at these issues that we're having as far as, like, the disparities and why we have the disparities, then I don't care how much we sit here and say this needs to get better, that gets, needs to better, until we really address these issues, things will always stay the same. So, mm-hmm. it's, it, it, you know, and one thing I wanted to show, too, was ways we could start looking at how we can make things better. So that was how I was going to end my presentation. Mm-hmm. Now, did um, so when you submitted the presentation, I guess in total, did you get feedback from the UN or, you know, or did they just sort of say, okay, this is where you're at, it sounds good, let's go for it? And who did you think, who did they tell you your audience probably would be? Um, so we had not, as far as I, we had not, submitted it yet because of the fact um, we were supposed to be doing that this coming week and then everything got canceled. Uh-huh. So, um, but our target audience was going to be basically everybody from around the world. Um, we would have had people coming from Africa. We would have had people coming from Switzerland. So it was people from around the world. So it, it was um, both men, women, um, we might have had some transgender community um, coming there as well. So, um, yeah, it was supposed to be, you know, a multitude of different people that was supposed to be coming to our presentation. Uh-huh. Now, I know that you've been doing some things at the Kofi House, which is under the umbrella of the Ruth Ellis Center. What have you been doing there? So I have actually a workshop. I had um, put together like a year and a half, and it's called For the Love of Her. And uh-huh. for her, it's for healing, empowerment, and resilience. So um, the reason why I had came out putting this workshop together, it actually came from me receiving a call, I want to say almost two years ago, um, from this young lady's mom. And the mom called me crying. First of all, I was like, how did this woman get my number? Um, but I guess somebody. <laughs> yeah, I was like, her what? I wasn't in case management or anything at that point in time. I was in doing the work that I'm doing now. And she wasn't even in our jurisdiction. Um, she lived on the outskirts in Livonia. And so her mom was telling me that her daughter was 19 
and actually had her first sexual experience and ended up becoming positive for herpes. And because her family kind of shamed her, she decided she was going to try to take her life. And luckily she was not successful. So her mom called and reached out to me and said, you know, somebody had told me you used to do case management and, you know, that you're in the HIV, STD field now. And I was wondering if you can come out and talk to my daughter. And I said, well, you guys don't live in our jurisdiction, but I'll still come out. So I did, and another coworker came with me, and I sat down and talked to her. And, you know, basically because of how we perceive STDs, it, she felt like it was nasty, this was something that she was going to have to live with for the rest of her life, nobody was going to warn her. And so basically after we had educated her and tried to change her narrative of how she looked at HIV, STDs, she felt a lot better when we walked away, but she wanted to continue going to some type of support group. So she was a student at Wayne State and asked me if I could look at some groups for her, and she wanted to be with black women around people who looked like her and would might have been through the same experience that she went through. So in, me, in my efforts in trying to find somewhere for her to go, there was really nowhere for her to go. And so mm -hmm. I had approached um, my supervisor to see if we can do something there to start having um, dialogue on these type of topics and stuff. But unfortunately, like I was saying earlier in the conversation, the funding's not geared towards black women. So that idea went down the drain. But I was like, I was just like really pissed off, and I was like, no, I'm, this, that's unacceptable. And I said, but you know what? I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm going to be about it, and I'm going to put something in place for black women. And I wanted something where people can come, black women can come together and we can form a sisterhood and we have that safe space and we can talk about the plethora of issues that we have to deal with from day to day. And one thing that my workshop did, we, it's more like storytelling. So by us having these stories, we build a bond with each other. And also we can see what somebody else might have gone through to get them to the other side. That may end up helping me on what, whatever road that I'm going through. So that was one of the reasons why I had started this workshop. Um, and I, um, like over time, I started at Wayne State University. We did like a one-hour workshop. Then um, – I've been asked to bring this workshop to different um, operate sessions at a couple of conferences. And I had a um, four-week workshop that I actually did at Michigan State University, Detroit, um, which it was more geared towards women that were over 18. But uh -huh. one thing about the um, workshop, I do uh, will modify it if somebody calls me, like I just did, at Go Lightly Education Center with their middle school students, um, their middle school girls on about empowerment. So I, each week it builds off of something. So the first week we start off with empowerment and resilience because I want the women to come in and start feeling good about themselves. Then we start breaking down the layers. And that was another thing. I wanted to start getting down to some of the root causes to why some of the women did not feel good about themselves. So, each week we try to 
build up, we kind of start building up each other with these tools. So the tools that they gain, hopefully I'm, they can apply it to life and start feeling better about their decisions. And knowing they also have a sisterhood with the women that they, um, you know, form a camaraderie when they come to the groups and stuff. So, yeah. You know, and that is so, you know, I talked to one of the people I met in um, Atlanta, and she was talking about how important it was to have for what she called a sister circle, where you, you mm-hmm. did, like you broke down those things and you had that camaraderie. Um, so you're doing them. And I like how, also how you said how you didn't want to just talk about it, you were going to be about it. <laughs> I mean, that is just mm-hmm. like so when you started doing it. Mm-hmm. What was the response of women, and do you see, did it help really reinforce what you saw as a need to do that? It did, because each time I do it, I get something else, and, you know, I learn something else, I gain something else, and I see why it is so important. And then when I, you know, when the ladies come back and they speak to me and they tell me what they got out of the workshops, um, some people we've had had really were able to open up and disclose things that they may not have disclosed to anybody, but because they felt like they were in a safe space, they were able to feel free to be able to disclose to their sisters, and they knew we had their back. Now, you know, you said, like, you didn't know how did someone got your phone number, but do you find now, and how does that feel, knowing that, you know, People see you as a resource, and people are going to reach out to you. Do you ever have a moment like, you know, what have I got myself into? Or, you know, okay. Sometimes I do. I'm not going to sit here. You up to the challenge because you know people are going to reach out to you and it for advice, resources, or where to go, look out for services and stuff. Well, I think me being the type of person I'm, I am, and I've always been one of those types, I, you know, if somebody needs something, even if I don't know what the answer is to it, I'm going to find out what it is. Or if you need this resource, I'm going to look into it, and I'm going to get you what you need, you know. So that's just always been me. So I don't look at it like um, something bad when people do reach out to me. But then it's like, okay, this situation just hit me. How am I going to be able to help them and that way that the outcome can be successful for them? And my thing with the young lady I just wanted her to have a positive outcome so she never felt that she had to resort to wanting to take her life. Wow. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah that's and it does a responsibility on me when uh-huh. people reach out like that because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being able to steer them in the right direction. Your team. You came together as a team. You put together this, this thing. Was it? How disappointing was it, even though you knew, you know, it was out of your hands, you know, this virus, that, you know, you had, you had done this prep work, and you come together as a team, and you were going to take it out here. How disappointing was it, and or what did you guys say, you know, about that? You know, what, what were you going to do? How were you going to make this energy that you put together come to reality maybe someplace else? Well, when London had let us know that they, you know, she had kind of pre-warned us, I want to say like a day before that there was talks that they were going to have to go ahead and cancel um, 
all of the parallel panel events because of this coronavirus um, that's going on right now. Um, we were kind of heads up, even though it was disappointing, one thing me and um, I ended up just going ahead and called London, and me and her both said, this is just our team and what we had to present is just too important that that's why we had thought about trying to see if we can get space here somewhere in Detroit, and we actually just go ahead and present this to our community <laughs> because it is important. We all have a message to give, and I think it is vital, especially to our people. So mm-hmm. I'm really hoping that we're able to still be able to provide this message, and then hopefully if they can, they reschedule it and we can can go to the U.N., well, have you had um, – what kind of feedback have you gotten from – because I know, like, Between the Lines ran a story about it. Have you gotten any inquiries from anyone? Not not, a, not yet. Not as a – Well, yeah. Well that's, well, that's right around the corner. You know that, you know. I mean, you're there, you're ready, and I think that as people hear and know about it, they are going to want to – have this information it's just too important and we do have venues here and organizations to me which should be behind bringing this information to to that no i know that it's important though and i i hope that we're able to um even if it's not for this month even you know because i know our goal was we wanted to put it out this month because of it being international women's and girls month um even if it's not this month, I just think if we're able to get an opportunity to do our presentation, I think it would be imperative to our community. You were at uh, the Kofi House, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's for lesbian women and girls. Um, a lot of your work deals with women and the LGBTQ community, but generally in women. What do you mm-hmm. see, you know, and often like, there seems to be this, this, this line that, you know, between heterosexual cis women who don't feel like they are connected to LGBTQ community, particularly lesbians and transgender. And, you know, particularly like when you see, like when they have the Women's March and they're talking about, you know, all these issues affect women, but often they leave out that community, our community. What you're working with really is an equalizer, STDs, Mm -hmm. HIV, I mean, wanting to take your life because of the conditions around you. All of these things are equalizers and equal opportunity things. They don't care if you're straight, gay, or whatever. What what message do you see needs to come out from, I guess you call, uh, progressive women or liberal women and the LG, how can we work better together to recognize that these affect all of us? And by affecting all women, it also I think affects that, our community. Right. I think we have to respect each other. Just because who we love should not be a dictator to how, whether somebody is more, you know, their voice should be less important at the table than another person because they may be straight, you know. Um, Uh We are all people. We all have a voice. 
we all are infected, uh, you know, affected about different things and stuff. And I think it's important that as women, we have to be um, a support for each other. And we can't, and I think that goes back to these implicit biases that we got to stop looking at what we think looks like one thing and why we shouldn't help each other and just look at we are human beings and each one of us deserves the right to be treated right, to have the same treatment when we go to seek health care. Um, and just because I may love women, that should not change the way I get treated or my voice mm-hmm. not being heard. What's the best way if someone is interested in bringing the whole group or having you come and talk, do your workshop, what's the best way for them to contact you? The best way to contact me, they can email me. What is your email address? Because they can start um, that way and then make that other connection. Um, my email address is Edmund, E-D-M is in Mary, O-N-D, consult, C-O-N-S-U-L-T, at yahoo.com. And I'm pretty good about getting back with people, too. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, one last question. Okay. Through all of this, you've got four kids. What do they mm-hmm. think when mom's going to the UN? My son, I guess I'll use the words my son keeps saying. He's like, Mom, you're a goat, even though I don't know what the goat means. I guess he's kids would. But, oh, okay, I know. Uh, Greatest I mean, of all time. Okay. Yeah, he's putting you in the same category as Selena. Go ahead, girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my son, he's like, Mom, you a goat out here. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> Uh-huh. So, um, no, they're really proud of me. They are. Um, uh-huh. And just, you know, looking, I want to uh-huh. leave them a legacy so that they know this is what my mom did, and we're going to try to do our best to live up to, you know, what she's showing us. So it's my legacy for my kids. Uh-huh. And, you know, and when as you look back, as, that young woman, young teen, who said, you know what, Mom, we can get this together. You left school. You were determined to finish. How do you feel? I mean, did you ever think that this is where you'd be? No. A lot of times, (laughs) no. (laughs) A lot of times, no. But I'm proud of where I'm at. Um, It has not been an easy road. But a lot of the lessons that I've learned along the way, I appreciate the lessons I have learned. It's made me be the woman that I am today. I just thank God that he has always provided and um, has always kept me in his favor. And when any door that I felt like has been slammed in front of me, he's always shown me why that might not have been the door that needed to be open at that time for me. Mm-hmm. So definitely keeping God first has been key and instrumental in things um, being, a, when, like I said, when the road got a little crooked, me not taking my, my eye off the prize on what I wanted to achieve. Uh-huh. Wow. Well, I have to tell you, you know, it has been a joy talking to you, Famika. 
Um, I hope to talk, I hope to talk to you again. I I, I intend to, um, uh, but I want to thank you for taking the time to be with me this evening and for sharing so much about yourself and your determination. I think that that that's what comes through. If after listening to this, if someone were to say to me about you, besides your <laughs> yeah, her son says she's a goat, but you are so determined, and you persevere. You you know you just don't you just don't give up, and that by that example, just as you you are not just talking about it, but being about it is such an mm-hmm. inspiration. And I thank you for that. Well, I thank you for inviting me to come on the show. Um, it gives me another avenue to be able to speak about the work that I'm doing and also, you know, um, to let people know if they want to ever come to any of my workshops or would like for me to bring their workshops to their establishment, um, they can reach out and get in contact with me. So I do appreciate you inviting me to the show tonight. Okay. Okay, Famika, well, I want to thank you, and I will be in touch. You have a good evening. You do the same. I want to thank my guest, the founder of For the Love of Her and Senior Public Health Educator for the HIV STI Prevention Division of the Detroit Health Department, Famika Edmond. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of a show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change, right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.